Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles producer Trent here. On this week's episode, we're very excited to be joined by the winner of the 2019 Booker Prize, Bernadine Evaristo, which of course uh, she won for her latest novel, Girl, Woman, Other. And she is uh, our first Booker Prize winner we've had on Book Shambles, had a few uh, shortlisted authors before, but never a winner. And as a little teaser, uh, hopefully in a few weeks' time, we'll be having our second Booker Prize winner on the show. Stay tuned for that. Before we get to the episode, just a quick bit of admin. Thanks very much, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to support the show. And you will get uh, extended editions of all of these episodes as well as lots of other bonus bits and pieces like our weekly Shambles Show and Tell show that Robin and Josie host with a different guest each week uh, showing us some fun stuff they've got around their house. Uh, The most recent episode we had Beck Hill on. Uh, Before that's been Chris Addison and uh, Nitin Sawney, Nish Kumar, lots of others. So subscribe on Patreon and you will get to watch those. And uh, if you subscribe at the behind-the-scenes tier of the Patreon as well. Uh, A lot of these episodes that we're recording remotely at the moment, you'll also be able to watch those. We release the the video call for the episodes for people on that tier. So you can, if you're able to, uh, pledge a little bit more and get to watch the episodes each week as well. Also, a quick mention for some other stuff we've got coming up Uh, or already out. Genetics Shambles is our new series that we are producing in association with the Genetics Society and the Milner Centre for Evolution at the University of Bath. That goes out every second Wednesday at 8.30pm, hosted by Robin, and it's sort of a a 12-episode crash course in genetics and evolution, uh, the history of it, where we're going with research in the future, how it's being used to combat COVID-19. It's really fun and informative, uh, conversational show. Uh, Some of the guests we've had on already are Emma Hodcroft and Adam Rutherford. And coming up, uh, Chris Stringer is on the next episode. So check that out, cosmicshambles.com slash genetics shambles. Our Science in Zero G series has now finished. All six episodes of that are available to watch on the Shambles website or our YouTube channel. Helen Chesky and Ginny Smith in microgravity at the European Space Agency and Novus Bus. Uh, we filmed that at the end of last year out in France. And coming up this weekend uh, is, or it would have been, the Blue Dot Festival. Uh, and we should have been up there doing Science Shambles and Book Shambles and all sorts of other shows. Uh, Obviously, we're not, so they're doing an online festival instead, a weekend in outer space. And we're excited to be presenting the headline science event of their weekend online festival. That's at midday on Saturday, and that will be Robin and Professor Brian Cox in conversation with the one and only Andrean, and of course, was the director of the Golden Record project on Voyager 1 and 2. 
Uh, she co-wrote and co-created the Cosmos series, uh, all three Cosmos series, including the original one in 1980 with her late husband, Carl Sagan, worked on the film Contact. Uh, I mean, it's Andrean. So that's at midday on Saturday on both the Blue Dot and the Cosmic Shambles YouTube channel. So make sure you check that out. That's enough admin for now. It's quite a lot of admin. Sorry about that. Um, you've probably skipped it anyway. Anyway, let's get to this week's episode. Here is Bernadine with Robin and Josie. Hello. Welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Hello, Josie. You're live from the Arts Emergency Offices again. Yes, I'm absolutely thrilled to be here on my bike. Oh, oh, it felt, I felt like I was flying. It was so nice getting back on a bike, getting here. I couldn't be in a better mood unless the entire rest of the world wasn't in turmoil. <laughs> but it's not. It doesn't matter about the entire rest of the world. You are now in, you know, your equivalent of zombie apocalypse charitable no. office, uh, you know, safety. No, I was having a chat with a friend about this the other day and he was saying, basically, it's just so untrustworthy when someone's like, we just had a really lovely lockdown. Because what they're saying is, I just haven't cared about all of the people who've had a difficult time and who've been ill. And it's like, no, we must all have a difficult time. No, I think, yeah, it's just reminded a lot of us that staying in is best generally i no, don't want to socialise anymore. I'm never going to do another stand up or I'm not going to go out. I'm just staying in. I've got oh, all my... But it was hard to get you to socialise anyway because you love comedy. Comedy is your socialising, really. It was. I've really gone off comedy, but we'll deal with that another day. Uh, I've I've had that bit where this is the trouble, isn't it, with lockdown uh, of of focus. Whereas we we live a very distracted life because you're always going to different gigs and oh my god, I have got this project and this project, and now you're just in your one attic room. Uh, and I've just been focusing and focusing on the damnable uh, nature of of comedy and what it reveals to us about our species. And uh, anyway, it is not going to be a happy book. Anyway. But working on now is happy because I'm writing a book all about how you should be happy about living in the universe and thinking about being, uh, you know, a, a hologram, uh, just two dimensional projected from some other place in the universe. And all of that has been delightful. So I'm going to write a happy book. Then I'm going to write a shorter, uh, miserable as fuck book. Um, and we are joined today by uh, someone that I, I met last year on a, a brilliant car journey. I thought it was a great car journey. We were, we went we were up up in Suffolk, and uh, it, it was uh, Philippa Perry, Natalie Haynes, and our guest today, Bernadine Evaristo, who I was just like, and I, I went straight out afterwards and uh, read uh, her book, Mister Loverman, which I thought was brilliant and um, which i loved and which is I, I read someone describing it recently as, as uh, a reimagining of, of kind of king lear which is you know which is impressive enough until then uh her, her latest book which is um has won the booker prize and i think you are very first guest to uh who's won the booker prize possibly guest when the rest of the people who want bookers go we're not going to go on that <laughs> farago um bernadine hello hello hi good to be here it's so nice to have you on. Yeah. There's so, there's so much to ask you about. I mean, one, it's just that incredible thing where what I love about the strangeness of, of, of this kind of world that we're in is sometimes you have a car journey with someone and then a few months later you turn on to the Booker Prize uh, footage and you go, oh, I sat in the back of the car with that person. <laughs> Busy drinks when we're, you know, driving past various little chefs in the East Anglia region. <laughs> That's right. You, don't, you never know who you, what's going to happen to the people you meet along the way, right? <laughs> and you were horrible to me on that car journey yes and now, 
And now you're all over me. Joe, Joe, Joe. <laughs> there must be a lot yeah, of that. We should add as well that the moment we had that car journey, just before you, you got out, I think you got out of Stratford, didn't you, to get the, to get yes, the train? Yes, like a good back. memory. Um, and... Uh, and I, and I said, oh, we must get you on book shambles. So I would like yes. to make this clear that this I didn't then go, oh, I met this person, now she's on the booker, so I must get her on book shambles. The trouble was, the moment you won it, I went, oh, balls. Now yeah. we'll never be able to get you on book shambles because yeah. you've got a big prize. Yeah. No, you did, you did invite me then, I remember, yeah. So this is, well, let's start off with, by, by talking about Girl, Woman, Other, because that, it's such the complexity of that. You know, when there's certain books where you're engrossed by them, but every now and again, your brain just goes, oh, my God, someone had to gather this together, had to gather their imagination and structure their imagination. Because it is, it's a remarkable feat of all of these narratives and all of these, and it is just so dense with personality and ideas in it. Can you tell when you start writing? Because Mr. Loverman is kind of a more, even though there's many things in that, it, it feels like a, you know, it's, it, well, it is. It's far more of a singular uh, narrative, though. Obviously, we have you know a lot of people around, but it feels like you go, here's the centre. Where's this? How do how do you start writing when you go right? This is the the project. Do you have a huge wall of post-it notes? What is your system? Yeah, you know, when I get responses like this to go one another. This is when I think, how am I going to write another book? <laughs> because for most of this time, I've been like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to write another book. I've written eight. Of course, I'm going to write another book. But then when you say things like that, I think, oh, shit. <laughs> how can I match it? Anyway, um, no, no, I don't have post-it notes. I barely make notes, actually. I've just got a really big brain. I've got a big, <laughs> I've got a big head and a big brain. No, the truth is that I built the novel really slowly starting with one character, leading to another character, leading to another character. And I would have an impression of my characters. And I would, I, I like to do kind of mind maps. I call them mind maps. So kind of brainstorming on the page where I just write down some ideas. But I'm not the kind of writer who can work with loads of post-it notes or who can write loads of pages of bio or even think too deeply about my characters before I actually start writing them. It's when I start writing them that it all starts to come together. And the other thing, in a sense, the research for this book is my life. And I've lived 61 years. So I've actually, and I've, I've known loads of people. You know, if you're in the arts, you're always meeting loads of people. So it's not like my life has been small. I've traveled a lot as well. So I just put in everything I've known about people, in a sense, into the book. And it just comes, I'm not thinking consciously about that. It just comes out. It just comes out through the characters. So that level of complexity and kind of diversity in terms of the range of characters and so on is, it is I put it down to life experience and, and having written eight books. So I've kind of had, you know, Mr. Loverman you mentioned. You know, he's a, like you say, it's a much simpler book. And he's a really strong character and I was very attached to him. But, but in a sense, he's a kind of character that came out of, meeting older generation Caribbean people for the first time in the 1980s when I got to know, I'm, I'm half English Nigerian, when I got to know Caribbean friends and, and meet their families. So, so the research for him came out of my first experience in the 80s and subsequently. So it's, I, I also think the fact that it is complicated, the fact that it is so broad, that's what makes it so real. 
because life is broad and complicated and difficult. And so actually it's sort of like the opposite of simplifying things down, which is not uh, is not useful or realistic. So of course it makes sense that you're like, I was able to use the breadth of my life to like yeah. make as as real as that actually is. That, that's right. And also, um, I couldn't have written this book at any, probably at any stage other than this stage of my life. So when I was in my 20s, I was writing people in their 20s. For me, old was 40. You know, that was kind of beyond the pale. And then when I was 40, the idea of writing characters in their 80s or 90s was just inconceivable to me. But now I am the age that I am. I can, I can look backwards to my past and I can imagine <laughs> being in my 90s. God, God willing, not religious, but anyway. And um, yeah, so that scope is really about coming to this point in my life, I think. I find that I'm always fascinated. Some some of the writers we, we speak to are very much a pre-planned, you know, they, 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 they cannot start until they know where it's going to end and they cannot start until they know the character whereas a, a, a surprising number actually and I, I think a really encouraging number of authors it's like you you have this discussion with them where they go and I thought I liked this character and I thought they were going to be the one that I felt closest to and then about page 100 I went I've really gone off you now that relationship <laughs> psychologically I find fascinating because you are the creator you are the god of this world and then you go ah. Oh, turns out what i had made to be the perfect thing that that now is dashed on the rocks so i imagine did you have a lot of experiences like that yeah because you know i know a lot of writers say this the characters start to write themselves so you have an idea a starting point for i have an idea a starting point for a character and then along the way they start to have their own personality and start to do things that i had no idea they were going to be doing and then my relationship with them changes and I, I, may, I, sometimes I'm really hard on my characters and I've been told that sometimes I'm really hard on my characters. I, give, I, I put them through the mill, run them through the mill. And, and then I have to, and then I start to dislike them and then I have to make them more likable. Not that characters have to be likable because I don't think they do at all. We just want them to be human, right? And that means as, you know, complicated and flawed as, as we are. But sometimes I have to consciously say, okay, you're coming across as too ruthless. And I did that with one of the characters, Carol, actually. And it was also partly feedback through Carol. Because Carol is somebody who, she, she goes through this terrible sexual assault, which kind of starts to define her life as a, as a young person. And, and then she becomes quite hard and ruthless. And I was, I was creating a character who would, would not talk to anybody unless they could further her career. You know, and I think there are people like that out there. And I thought they are, right? I am not talking to anyone unless I'm going to get something out of it. And and yet I felt, oh, am I making her too harsh? And a couple of readers felt that she was unlikable. Now, like I say, they don't have to be likable. But I did want the readers to somehow empathise with her. So I cut back on some of that harshness that she was demonstrating so my last novel Mr Loverman actually the, the wife has her own section so she's kind of like the uh, co-protagonist if you like and her section is a bit like confusion fiction it's like poetry and when I wrote it that form I loved it because it was such a freeing experience <clears throat> and so then when I started this novel I just wanted to continue with that form and so it, in a sense the fusion fiction form came out of all the other books 
it came, came out of my background as a poet and then a verse novelist and an experimentalist culminating in this form, which the most interesting thing about it for me is that people read the book and they're not put off. <laughs> it's like they're not put off. And it's, I'm like, oh, and often they talk about the book and they don't even talk about the form. It's almost as if they, and, and, and in a way, that's what I want it to do. I want the form to disappear and for the words to just come at the reader. And I hope that that's what happens, that in the end, it doesn't matter that there aren't full stops because actually the pages, the lines are patterned in such a way that you know when to take a breathing space and you just, you just go with the flow, literally. And then you're just into the story. And I think that's what it does. It just takes you straight into the story. And that absence of full stops and that page formation, I think, is key to it. That's really interesting. I, I think you know about this, Josie. There's a friend of mine, Alistair Fruish, and uh, he wrote a book called The Sentence, and it has no punctuation in it. He wrote it because he works in prisons, and he found that uh, some of the, the the people who didn't read very much, one of the things they'd always found problematic was just the, the structure. And so he wrote, it's just one long sentence, and it's kind of, there's elements of a dystopian novel, it's a prison novel. And, and I did a, a, there was a live gig where there were eight of us lined up, and we would all, one of us would start reading. And it just, and then the next person, someone would point, it was Daisy Campbell, uh, would point to us and then it would go on to someone else. And if anyone left to go to the loo, uh, one of us would have to then follow that person only to the door. Um, and, you know, <laughs> and, and, and so there were points in this little theater in Marlborough where there were four of us following people around, you know, going to order at the bar and whatever. But it was a really, it became like this spell. And even though I, I think to some people who were, used to reading normal fiction their initial reaction to it would be how the hell does this work but when it was turned into a live event in particular you go oh yeah every and it, it the the possibilities of meaning changed it was it was like really exciting i think it allows for so much more like beauty and lightness because you can just write like you can just write what you need to write you don't need to write in this sort of as if it's been received from you way like yes you know you know very interesting because um, somebody did say to me that they're dyslexic and that they find it really hard to read and they found this book so easy to read. I was like, oh my God, because they weren't worried about full stops. They were just engaging with the words. Isn't that amazing? So it's similar to what you're saying, really. It's just the words. The words are just coming off the page or out of people's voices. And that's what, that's what matters, isn't it? The words. Actually, I love hearing this because I'm really terrible at punctuation. I mean, <laughs> if someone is that, I'm so, oh. I literally, I write and then I go, I presume it must be time for a comma. So I just stick <laughs> one in. Honestly, uh, though, fuck a semicolon. <laughs> fuck a semicolon. <laughs> oh, I love semicolons. No! But actually, I've become really bad at punctuation because I worked on this book for five years, right? And I didn't have to worry about the full stop. <laughs> and now when I'm writing, I'm like, oh, where does it go? I've forgotten. You Do know? you send stream of consciousness emails to people? <laughs> Almost. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it has it has messed with my sense of grammar a little bit, actually. But, but actually, just to uh, get, talk about the revision process, that was when I realized why we need full stops. Because it was a it was hell revising this novel because it just felt like a sprawling mess because it didn't have proper sentences. And so I was like trying to work out how to revise it. And I couldn't quite see what I'd written because there was, it was just flowing on and on and on and on and on. It was just so confusing. And then all the different characters appear in each other's timelines in some way or another. Um, and 
I had to, to sort of align their timelines. That was an, I don't have a technical brain. So Robin, clearly you've got a scientific brain. I do not. No, I, I don't. I cannot I add up or anything. So trying to align these timelines and then not having the full stops. And I just thought, okay, the full stop is really important and we need, <laughs> and we need it. <laughs> but that's interesting because that's what, because I hate editing and it makes me feel oh, physically God, sick yeah, sometimes. I get so confused. I'm at a very early, well, I'm, I, I'm not at a very early stage because the deadline's August. I'm very <laughs> finished Atlantic. I'm really nearly finished, right? But I'm having the fun bit, which is as everything cascades out. I've, and I think, Josie, I don't know, I, I think you, that, that bit where you cascade it and then you go and now you have to chip away at the structure. And some people adore that and I absolutely hate it. I like the, here's everything. Yeah. I hate that bit of going, and now you have to make other people be able to understand it. Oh. I very much feel like, why cannot the world operate on a first draft system? Yeah. <laughs> it's just, you know, first draft, good draft. Well done. All done. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask about the humour in the book because it's such a funny book. And do you see yourself as a funny writer as a comedy writer or do you not like is it just because that's life and life is funny or what's your attitude to that I find it really hard to talk about the humor in the book actually I okay. find it really hard to deconstruct it I I see I don't think I'm a very funny person I'd like to be just in my life you know I mean my husband I make him laugh but I don't I'd like to be somebody who can crack jokes and who just can lighten the atmosphere and I can't really do that. But in my writing, it, for me, it doesn't work unless there's humour. And when there's not humour, then it just feels like it's, it's dead. The writing is dead and has no life. But at the same time, I have to be careful when I say that because people then think it's, you know, be careful what I say to people who've got strong, <laughs> funny gene, right? <laughs> that people will then think it's only humour. Yeah, just but, a book. But yeah. actually only humour doesn't really exist, does it? So it's it's humour, but it's also always very, very serious things that are underpinning the humour. And sometimes I've written satire. My book, Blonde Roots, is outright savage satire. And that was totally intentional. But with this book... I think the humour just bu always bubbles away beneath the surface. And I think it's about how people behave and how people see each other and the contradiction between the two. I think, I think that's what I'm doing. But, you know, you can tell me because you think about it more than I do, humour. <laughs> I, just, I just was really just aware of it as a, as a constant presence in the book. Like, you know, I love the fact that, like, the... Um, the narrators themselves had their own kind of senses of humour that came through, like, it, as part of their voice, you know? And, um, but I think as well it comes to, it comes down for me that I think, like you say, nothing's realistic if there isn't some humour in there. Because yeah. everyone is joking. Everyone has their in-jokes and their laughs. And, yeah. you know, all of life has, like, little absurdities. And, you know, there isn't a day where there isn't a bit of a laugh. Yeah. So it wouldn't I feel like life. Yes, I think I think what I am is very irreverent as a writer. Yeah. And I think maybe that's partly why this book is reaching parts my other books haven't reached, although the, it's the same humour with all my books in one way or another. But as a, an irreverent writer, there are no kind of sacred cows. And I think everything should be up for grabs as, as well as in terms of humour. And so when you read it, it feels very, just feels very human, like you said. It's about, humour is about being human, isn't it? It just feels very humor, but human because these people are just very human. 
And they have these inflated sense of, some of them have got inflated egos, and then somebody else will puncture the ego. Or they, they will see themselves in a certain way, but it's not how we see them. Yeah. Or their behavior might be sometimes morally reprehensible, um, but they may not be able to see that. They'll just self-justify their behavior. And all of that is really just about being human, isn't it? Yeah. I, I wanted to ask as well about what you love to read. Um, what have you been reading recently that you love, but also... Uh, wait, first I'm going to ask that. What have you been reading recently <laughs> that you love? Um, what am I... I'm just about to start Amanda Craig's The Lie of the Land. And I, I do like her books a lot. And she's got um, strong, funny gene, actually. Um, and I... I read a lot of books for work, but anyway, uh, I've just finished a book called um, That Reminds Me by a young writer called Derek Owusu. Uh, I don't want to call it a memoir because it's actually a semi-autobiographical verse novel. Oh, um, it just has a bit of a memoir feel to it. And it's about growing up in, I don't know when, I think probably the, the 90s. And he's of Ghanaian parentage and he's fostered out and it's about his childhood and then about returning to live with his mother and about his living in Tottenham and about his mental health issues. And it's, um, it's actually a really beautiful book and a very, very serious book. Um, and yeah, I just finished it a couple of days ago, just been tweeting about it actually. And I also read um, earlier this year, a book called The Vanishing Half, which I have been raving about by somebody called Britt Bennett. It's an American book and it's about uh, two sisters who are very light-skinned black women and one of them chooses to pass for white and it's about how that how that plays out it's a bestseller at the moment actually it's doing oh, really well right. <laughs> and I, I tend to uh I get sent a lot of books and I, I look forward to the day when I can go back to the way things used to be when I would just read books purely because I came across them or because I read about them rather than reading to keep abreast of the kinds of books that I'm expected to know about. <laughs> do, do you have that? That to me seems, because I, I, I find that where sometimes the difference in the process of reading when there is a deadline because it has a specific purpose. Like I was just rereading um, Alan Moore's Jerusalem, which I, I, I love. And I think it's a, it's a facet, again, in terms of the nature of time, it's an enormous lump of a book. But the first time I read it, I had to read, I mean, it's a book that's longer than the Old Testament and I had to read it to interview him. So I had a race on with this huge book and then I started rereading it recently and of course, I'm enjoying it in a totally different way. And I'm seeing that because also I think because I'm allowed to sit back and just enjoy the ride and not go, is there a question there? Is there a pertinent point there? Is there something? And so I, do you sometimes find that you, you read a book which, which has the specific purpose that you have to and then you think, do you know what? I'm going to go back to that because I think there's there's a greater joy to be found in it when there's not a deadline. No, right. I don't. I, I rarely go back to books, actually. I think once I've ploughed my way through a book, as much as I love it, but haven't been able to read it at leisure, then I won't because there are so many other books to read. So I feel like I've done that book, even though I didn't enjoy it as much as I'd have liked to because I was thinking of reviewing it or whatever or judging it. So uh, I just feel like there's hundreds of books behind me. Um, in, in the other room and I just I just need to read them all and I've got any do, you, time. do you want to read any of these? <laughs> <laughs> is that Q is that Q magazine? 
Oh, yeah, no, I pulled out a Q magazine the other day. In fact, this is quite a good thing, oh. because um, Tanita Tikram is on the cover of that one. Oh, my God, 1990s. And, and this is a great, because I wanted to ask you about this. We're talking about verse novels, and when we had Tanita on, and um, also Lem Ciso as well talked about this, and it's oh. one of my favourite novels, which is The Monkey's Mask by Dorothy Porter. Oh, and yes, yes. And that is, I, I'm intrigued, but it's an incredible thriller. It's a thriller in verse, but the annoyance to me is the fact that because it's in verse, immediately you're reducing the audience, aren't you? Because people are going, even though it's the most thrilling way of writing. And how do well, we... Well, yes, you're right. I, you know, I met her and that's, I was in Australia 20 years ago and we were both on, on a panel together. I think she passed away, actually. Yes. And, yeah. Yes. And I, I thought that book was incredible. It, like you say, it was a thriller, it's a crime novel. There's hardly any text, but she packs the whole world into it. And then it was made into a film mm. with that Kelly Kelly actress, woman in Kelly Red, McGillis. Kelly McGillis. And it was actually a really good film. So uh, I was. What, what I find really interesting about verse novels is that everyone does it very differently. You know, regular novels look the same. You have paragraphs and sentences and the rest of it. Whereas verse novels, everybody's exploring and doing things in a different way. So the book I mentioned, That Reminds Me, by Derek Wusu, is prose poetry. So some people probably won't even recognise it as poetry. It's prose poetry. But there is that barrier that people have to reading a verse novel, especially if they're not used to reading poetry, because they think, well, I don't like poetry. I'm an, oh, my God, a whole novel told through poetry. It's a nightmare. <laughs> Which is why with my first, my second verse novel, no, my first one, Lara, we called it, no, no, Lara, we called it a verse novel. But with my second one, The Emperor's Babe, we called it a novel. And my publisher put a novel on the front cover. So, which people don't normally do, right? So people picked up that book or bought it and read it in spite of themselves. And they would come up to me at events and said, well, I, I got this book and then I opened it and my heart sank and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and then I got into it because actually it doesn't have to be turgid and all those, all those kinds of um, uh, preconceptions people have about poetry based on what they studied at school, probably in a different era. They then bring to the idea of reading poetry today for those people who don't read poetry. And then you can encounter verse fiction and it can be as lively as interesting as readable as anything else it's just that it's shaped differently in the page and i'm using language in a different way you but just have to trojan horse it you trojan horse a, po a poetry novel <laughs> yes absolutely yes yes it's a jedi mind trick isn't it no it isn't poetry look it says novel it definitely <laughs> says novel so it can't be poetry because they yes. wouldn't lie um, <laughs> so sad as well that that as as a like as a world we have such like bad opinions of poetry in general the idea that people would be like oh a book poems <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit sad it's a bit sad Bye, can i recommend I don't know if you just could talk about poetry have either of you seen um andrew cotting's film about John Clare yes, with, with Toby Young, uh, Toby Jones rather, not Toby Young. Oh my Honestly, God, not with Toby Young. Oh, that would be awful. It's oh, so I've seen that film in my head. I feel sick. Stop the podcast. <laughs> the, um, is my favourite, one of my favourite actors in the whole world. I love him. And Toby Young is one of my least favourite people yeah. in the world. And the amount of times where the crossovers happened and I've been like, oh, my brain, my 
work. Oh, and Toby Litt working as some kind of Toby bridge between it all. Oh, but God. it's no, no, no. Toby it Litt's called? great as well. Yes, but, he um, is. What's it called? It, it, oh, I'm trying to remember now. By it, ourselves. It, by that's us. it. Yeah. By ourselves. And but and it's by ourselves. It's Toby Jones as John Clare walking from uh, walking to, to Northampton. Um, this journey he did over th- over three days, and it's Freddie Jones, his dad, who of course in in the Elephant Man, a, br- a, br- a brilliant actor, um, reading John Clare. So it's very old. It was like ninety years old then. So it's old man, beautifully read, and then and then Toby, his son, and it, and it's just it's a really beautiful film, and it's not done in historic. So so he's walking past, though he's taking the journey, he's still walking past the motorways that are now on the way, you know, in the middle, you know, Peterborough and stuff. And I thought that was because I was sorry, a very roundabout way. But is the reason that we have that attitude to poetry because more often than not, when we come across poetry when we're young, after we've dealt with nursery rhymes, mm. we've come across something to study. So the the reason that people feel that is is you know whoever it is you know Wordsworth and Coleridge and Rupert Brooke and all, but they their their first thing is oh this is work because poetry yes. is. Work. But it's also that they think it's difficult and that it should be difficult. And it depends on how it's taught as well, because certainly when I was at school, there was only one interpretation of a poem. I like to think that's changed now. So the teacher would ask you to, um, you know, interpret a poem and you are either right or wrong. I mean, that's terrible, isn't it? But we are going back into the dark ages. So and I think the level of difficulty... So I think perhaps, I, I mean, actually, to be honest, I don't know about secondary school education. I don't know what it's like now. But I like to think that children are being introduced. Well, I know they are to a lot of contemporary poets. Um, but at the same time, those contemporary poems are a, a great deal older than the young people <laughs> who are reading it. So maybe for them, that's kind of old fogey stuff. I don't know. Well, I remember I got, um, we did um, the Blood Axe Book of Women Poets, which was like oh, yes, feminist yes. poetry. And it would have been, so I was doing that in the late 90s, and it was probably poems written in the 80s. That's so near. That's like now, yes. if somebody gave me a book of poetry, it was written in 2005, I wouldn't be like, oh, how can I relate? I'd be like, yeah. great, that was last week. Yeah. But like, as a teenager, you're like, in the 80s, great. Yeah. What could this say about my life? absolutely that's yeah yeah sorry to interrupt your podcast but i just quickly wanted to let you know about the thing which is that book shambles and the cosmic shambles network exist thanks to generous pledges of our listeners on patreon if you want to support the podcast and what we do tiers start at just one dollar a month and you'll get all sorts of goodies thrown in so go to patreon.com slash book shambles Do you miss performing? Was performing a big part of of what you did? It was from my childhood to age of 12, youth theatre, then going to drama school and then acting until I think the last production I was in was 1986. And then I just left it behind. But actually, as a writer, there's an element of performing because, you know, you're always in front of an audience reading your work. And if it's fiction, you've got to put some kind of... um, performance into it because otherwise it's just gonna bore people to tears so yeah so so it's there but I I I, even by the time I was um uh towards the end of my acting career I'd fallen out of love with performing so by the time I stopped I was very happy to stop I did not miss it and I still don't miss it acting at all and in fact when my first book was published and that was about eight years after my um last play 
I was really nervous about standing in front of an audience. I kind of had stage fright because I'd had this period of eight years where I hadn't done anything in front of anybody at all. And suddenly I had to get out there and read my poetry to people. And I was extremely nervous. And now I just got used to it. But um, yeah, no, I, I much prefer watching people, eavesdropping, asking questions. If I'm at a party, the chances are I would be very happy sitting in a very well-appointed seat in the room so I can see everybody. Maybe with a mate and just watch and, and eavesdrop, you know, <laughs> and listen. I'm very curious. I ask questions all the time. Really, really curious. So, so rather than being the person up there and, you know, putting on the pizzazz, I like to be behind the scenes observing. Mm. And uh, that's good. It's very good for a writer, you know. <laughs> yes. But then I am, I am in front of people a lot anyway. But, um, but I like to observe. Oh, so you sort of, you're getting a low-key performance sort of buzz at all times. I suppose I am. I suppose I am. I've just got used to it, you know. Um, it doesn't, it, it's not something that's like, yeah, that makes sense. It's just, it's just, it's just what I do now. But I, I said no to telly for years, actually. So I, I was in something on telly, was, uh, won't even go in there, but in 1982. And then the next time I did telly was when I won the booker. The day after I won the booker. I hadn't done anything since then. And they, actually, to be honest, they hadn't asked me. Um, but since then, they were asking me. Oh, no, no, they had asked me. They'd asked me to do um, Newsnight a couple of times. And I'd said no, because the idea of being on television was just appalling. I was just, I just thought, I can't do it. Everybody looking at me, what, how am I going to look? And I'm incredibly vain. So it's like, I'm not going to come over well. And am I going to mangle my speech? And da, 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 da. So I said no. And then I won the book. And then they were just like, I was inundated. And I kind of got used to it. So actually, I quite like doing telly now. But he's not. I like the exposure as well. As a writer, it's brilliant exposure, isn't it? Yeah. To be on telly. Well, also, there's something about it being the right time. It's the right time. Right time. You don't feel in an underconfident place. You feel in a, in I feel a, extremely like, confident at the moment, yeah. actually. Yeah. But that's like that to me is thrilling. It's like, yeah, you're at the height of your powers. And also, I know I have to be on telly because that is where you get maximum exposure. And also... I have to be a voice out there because I'm so fed up of hearing the guys rabbiting on, sorry. But um, I need to, if, if I'm given an opportunity to speak up and to talk about things from my perspective, I need to take that opportunity. Because yeah. if we all say no, then the status quo stays the same. And I'm fed up with the status quo. So they can shut up and you can listen to me for once. So I did question time. I loved it. Did you recently? I did it, yes, in I lockdown. It was, it was live in a studio as well. How and, was it? Oh, absolutely loved it. <laughs> power mad, power mad. So we had the Tory politician to my left, you know, delivering his spiel, not meaning a word of it, and it was around Black Lives Matter and statues and law and order. He was the Lord Chancellor. And Boris... And I would normally be at home shouting at the screen, yeah, yeah, yeah. you do, 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 But, you know, he was the first person speaking. And then Fiona Bruce 
asked me to speak. So I could I could deliver um, a riposte, if you like, to, to him. And I said what I had to say, and I was just absolutely enjoyed it. That's <laughs> it, amazing. I loved it, because I thought, so many people are going to be listening to this. Also, and I've li- oh, sorry, no, no, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. No, I, no, carry so on. It's exciting to me when I see somebody on Question Time and they're saying what I want to hear. It's yes, like, yes. It's such a relief. And, and you're right, it's the platform of it. It the is. That it's getting to the maximum amount of people, what That's needs right. to be said. That's right. And I didn't mince my words, but I also didn't lose control. Because years ago, I was very bad at arguing because I would lose control. I would just get angry and emotional. And you can't, you can't do that when you're debating. You have to stay really cool. I mean, somebody like David Lammy, and I have a huge amount of respect for him, he's very passionate, and that's great, but he's totally in control. Whereas I would be, if I got into some kind of um, debate even, not even an argument, I would get emotional and get really angry. And then I would be pretty inarticulate. But I've learned to absolutely be in control in those kinds of situations now and deliver what I have to deliver. Mm. Mm. Does that also... I presume the invites change because there must have been a point where one of the things with television is it it, it does make people you know uh, the, the two dimensional nature of it not obviously really you know the, the appearance of it but that if you're invited onto something you are aware that they're hoping you have this opinion and you will represent this particular and that's it and and of course you know your book so much of that is about the fact that to be this a, a singular cipher is not how human beings are whereas now you go, well, do you know what? I've got a lot of awards and I've also got the booker. So <laughs> I'm allowed to be, I've, 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 I've won a, a place here. I have deserved a place here and I don't have to be whatever you want to shape me into. I, th- I think so. Yes. I think it's about, and actually people like to categorize, we like to categorize each other and also box each other in and I will come up with opinions that people might not expect from me. And I, I'm, I'm, I really enjoy kind of subverting their expectations. And I feel that I feel totally that actually what happens now is that I'm really listened to. And I wasn't listened to before. I was kind of ignored mostly. Not only have I got a stronger social media following, but people listen to me and they, they retweet things that I say, for example. So I used to write all kinds of political tweets about this that and the other and of course nobody nobody paid any attention now it'll appear in the paper the tweet will appear in the paper i'm like oh i have the power (laughs) to to kind of to influence people and situations and and that's that's really good you know it's all to be enjoyed Mm. has it how much has it not changed you but that sense that you know you you've won a lot of awards for your writing. It's not as if this has just come out of the blue, but this is obviously, it is see, it, it's, it's something, I don't want to say pinnacle because that suggests a conclusion. And now yeah, I like that. Yeah. So I won't say that. Um, but uh, that bit of going, all of this work leads to a place where now the, the, you know, your voice and your ability to express your ideas is now open to a whole new, as you said, a whole new playing field of people and they will pay attention. And do you every now and again, I mean, obviously you've been saying now you have, as we've clearly noticed, gone power crazy. Um, and uh, <laughs> are you kind of, <laughs> does, it, does it give true. you that extra bit of sucker of just going, yep, 
this is, you know, every now and then, I'm sure you must have found yourself sometimes halfway through a novel going, I don't even know why, why I'm writing this. <laughs> and who's going to read? There must be time, you know, that yeah, level of doubt. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's not even doubt. It's just despondency. It's like, well, I may sell, I may sell a few thousand copies. You know, I will, I will get some reviews, but, you know, it's not going to break through. And then suddenly this happens and it feels incredibly gratifying. And especially looking at where I came from all those years ago, to suddenly be in this position, to be inside the heart of the establishment, actually. No longer marginalised, but mainstream. <laughs> <laughs> While you're there, just smash it up. While you're there, <laughs> I've, just done, I've just done a, um, a takeover of Sunday Times Star magazine, oh, wow. which is coming out on Sunday. And it's a black women stroke Womaxon takeover. Wow. A whole load of queer black women in there, actually. I'm like, oh, this is the Sunday Times. Yeah. And I have taken over that magazine. And it's completely radical. It's, it's something it would have been unheard of. Until I did it, I think it would have been unheard of. Certainly and, and until Edward Ennenfeld took over at Vogue, it would have been unheard of. For such an establishment magazine um, to, to, to feature all the, all the women I've got featured in it. It's, it's just, I feel so um, proud of it. Proud to be inside the establishment, but for my radical spirit to be very much alive. It's never gone anywhere. So I'm not interested in becoming part of the establishment on the establishment's terms, whatever that is. I'm interested in staying true to my politics, but being inside the, the belly of the beast and changing it from within at this point. That's brilliant. That's a great place to end on because uh, you've given us such a fantastic reading list, a watching list. I've got to now go and watch your appearance on Question Time uh, <laughs> and not fast forward through the idiot bloke at the foot just to make sure that it's you know, contextualised. Um, that reminds me, The Vanishing Half, loads of... Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome, and, it's been really good. Yeah, um, thank you. It's lovely to talk to you. And uh, so what, what's your next... Uh, have you got... A, a, what are the next things that are, uh, are coming up? Just lots of little commissions, which is, suits me fine. Something I'll work on something for a few days and then it's out there and get going on a new novel next year because this year is just too busy. I haven't got time to think. So we'll see. We'll see. Oh, brilliant. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Josie, what are you up to next? Uh, I am going to be trying to finish the one short story that I've been trying to write for three weeks that, that for some reason is just I'm finding too hard to finish. I can't, I can't get it done. I'll quickly recommend this uh, for small creatures such as we by Sasha Sagan, which is just a lovely little kind of, uh, it's partly memoir, partly uh, just, um, mulling over of science and, and contemplating ideas and she is uh uh the daughter of andrean and carl sagan uh and uh so I, I knew nothing about it till the other day and i just started reading it and it's a very very sweet little book about mm. kind of thinking about to live in a scientific universe but at the same time to think about how we can create the ritual and how we can create you know the, the, maintain the awe and all of those kind of things so i'll just quickly recommend mm. that um thanks oh, so much everyone i'll do a recommendation uh, what's his name? Crispin Best. He's, he's, um, he's written a collection of poetry and it's called Hello and it's been reprinted. And he is strange and delightful and great. And I recommend it. 
Great. And uh, cool. I'll just do a quick recommendation. Uh, <laughs> if you are in London uh, on the uh, 23rd of August 1986, uh, Cabaret at the Royal Standard, uh, oh, yeah. that's uh, the same uh, bill as uh, is going to be on Sunday. There we are. So that's uh, that's the time out <laughs> listings for 1986. Wow. And um, thanks very much, everyone who supports us for our Patreon and keeps us going. And uh, thanks very much for, for listening. Thank you again, Bernadine. That was thanks uh, very much. That, that was, was so almost much as much fun as the car journey. That was yes, a good car yes. journey. We didn't talk about the menopause next time. <laughs> that's the yeah. That, that that's very much you know the end of the spy who loved me. But James Bond will return in the menopause. So, I need uh, more information about it. I know yeah. it's rising. I want to know. Yeah. Oh, it'd be wonderful. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where to go to subscribe. Don't forget to review, like, five stars, all that business that you can do with podcasts wherever you listen to podcasts. That really helps us out. Cosmicshambles.com or at Cosmicshambles on Twitter uh, to find out about all the stuff we've got coming up, including this Saturday at midday, Robin and Brian talking to Andrean as part of the Blue Dot Festival. Back next week with a new episode. Take care. Stay safe. Bye-bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.